I'll invite you to, to grab your Bibles and turn to Romans, the book of Romans chapter 15. And uh, I just got a few, just kind of by way of introduction, kind of pastoral remarks to make, um, not about myself, but about um, uh, two other individuals on staff at our church. Uh, it's kind of a unique day for us today. Uh, today is Pastor Brian's final Sunday, not for good. Uh, Pastor Brian is uh, going on sabbatical for a couple months, and uh, we're really excited for him and his, his family, really thankful for Pastor Brian and for Polly and uh, their three little kiddos. Uh, they have served so faithfully here uh, for the last 10 years, and it really is a joy for us as a church to support them, to give them a little bit of extra time off, to get some refreshment, some encouragement, and, uh, and Lord willing, to be rejuvenated, to come back and re-engage in ministry in a fresh way that's going to bless and benefit us all. So I want to encourage you to be praying for them. Um, leave them alone over the next couple months, but pray for them faithfully and, uh, and trust that God is going to really replenish them. The, the second kind of pastoral remark I need to make is about uh, Miles. Most of you know that this is, is Miles' final Sunday with us on staff. And uh, we are so thankful for Miles and Amber and their three little girls. And, and so we're going to be talking more about that at the end of the service. But, but I think it's fitting, honestly, that we get a chance to just even think about them out the gate at the beginning of this service because Paul here is really describing, at the end of this letter, he's describing his own life in ministry. He's kind of pulling back a little bit as he closes this letter to the Roman church, and he begins to talk a lot about his own personal ministry, the ministry that the Lord has entrusted to him. And, and he, he talks, in a sense, about the tireless work that he has been engaged in and the ambition that drives his, his life and his ministry. And I want to look at this to not only observe the, the life and ministry of the Apostle Paul, but to actually glean from him some principles that I think are really relevant and helpful for us, for all of us, not just those of us in ministry, but all of us as Christians in our, our Christian life. Because I think what Paul teaches us here is how to live the Christian life on mission, how to remain focused, how to stay at the task and there's some wonderful principles here that I think are going to just be a real blessing to us. I understand that as we look at the life of the Apostle Paul, we've got to be careful. There's not a one-to-one -one correlation. None of us here are apostles. We don't share the same gifts as the Apostle Paul. We don't share the same role as an apostle, and we don't share the same context that he was doing life and ministry in. But, but listen, Christian, we do share the same general calling. We, like Paul, are Christ followers. We are Christians. And it's interesting to me because throughout the New Testament in particular, we're constantly told to imitate people like Paul. Paul himself says on multiple occasions to imitate me or follow me as I follow Christ. The author of Hebrews tells Christians to imitate their leaders, to follow the example of their leaders. Peter, in 1 Peter chapter 5, when he writes to the elders there, he tells the elders that they're supposed to be examples to the flock. In other words, it, it is good for us to look at human leaders and to see the marks of the grace of God that are evident in their lives, and we're applicable and, and necessary to actually model our lives after them, to follow them as they follow Christ. So here's what I want to do this afternoon. I, I want us to look at Paul so that we can follow Paul and how he lived his life for Jesus Christ. So why is this so important? Let me just give you a few things in case you're not compelled yet. Because if we do this, listen, if we can do this, if we can model our lives after Paul, if we can glean from these principles and apply them to their lives, when this characterizes us as people, it means we have actually understood the purpose for which God has not only created us, but the purpose for which He has saved us. It means we can live our lives with the purpose that God intends for us to live them with. It means also that we have pursued the right things in this life. It's, it's, 
It's going to be imperative to understand this. Many of us will get to the end of our lives and realize that we lived our lives for the wrong things. And because we live for the wrong things, we lived our lives the wrong way. And if we can get this now, we can see how Paul lived for the right things and therefore he lived the right way. And then here's why this is important for you and me, lastly, because if we get this, if we can grasp this, it'll only lead to our joy. It'll only lead to blessings from God in our lives. And at the end of our lives, it will mean that we will stand before God and we will be considered successful in the eyes of God. And my prayer is that that is what you want. My prayer has been all week that this is what you want, this is what I want. And I want to read this text together, so let's look, beginning at verse 14. We're going to read down to verse 21. Paul writes these words. He says, I myself am satisfied about you, my brothers, that you yourselves are full of goodness and filled with all knowledge and able to instruct one another. But on some points I have written to you very boldly by way of reminder, because of the grace given me by God to be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles in the priestly service of the gospel of God, so that the offering of the Gentiles may be acceptable, sanctified by the Holy Spirit." In Christ Jesus, then, I have reason to be proud of my work for God. For I will not venture to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me to bring the Gentiles to obedience by word and deed, by the power of signs and wonders, by the power of the Spirit of God, so that from Jerusalem and all the way around to Illyricum, I have fulfilled the ministry of the gospel of Christ. And thus I make it my ambition to preach the gospel. Not where Christ has already been named, lest I build on someone else's foundation. But as it is written, those who have never been told of Him will see, and those who have never heard will understand. I want to I break this passage up really into two parts, two points, but they, they make one sentence that I hope you can grab a hold of and that maybe you can digest this afternoon together. Here's, here's what I want us to see from the Apostle Paul and to learn from him. I must be a healthy Christian with a holy ambition. That's it. I must be a healthy Christian with a holy ambition. Those are the two points. The first point is very simple. I must be a healthy Christian. I must be a healthy Christian. We see this in verses 14 through 16. And here, Paul actually highlights two things in this section. He, he looks at, remember, he's writing to the Roman church, to the context of which he is writing, and he writes, first of all, to, to help them see and, and identify their own maturity, and then he wants to talk a little bit about his own ministry. So, he points out their maturity and his ministry, and from these two things, we can draw out some principles that teach us what it actually looks like to be a healthy Christian. This isn't an exhaustive list. But I want to show you four things that really point to health in the Christian life, maturity in the Christian life. First, I must encourage others regularly. I must encourage others regularly. This is so instructive for us. Paul, he writes in verse 14, I myself am satisfied about you. He looks at the church that he has been writing to for these past 14 or so chapters. This is a church that he's never been to. He did not plant, but he's heard enough about them to, to know that these are people that love God and are seeking to honor Him. So he tells them that he's satisfied about them. He calls them brothers because that's what they are. They're family in the family of God along with Paul. And he highlights some things there for them in order to encourage them. I just want you to see what Paul is doing here. He simply takes a moment to pause and praise the church for their faithfulness. He wants to recognize and commend their maturity. He wants to say, listen, I know I've been saying a lot of things to you. I know I've been teaching you a lot of things about the gospel, but I am very aware that the people I'm writing to, they, they, you, you love God and you're striving hard after Him and you're maturing in the faith. 
I think what we see Paul doing here is what every wise pastor ought to do, what every wise Christian ought to do, which is this, encourage people where he sees great gospel growth in their life and evidence of gospel grace in their life. Now, I'll be the first to acknowledge that it is very easy to be heavy on the truth and heavy on exhortation. If you've been coming to this church for any length of time, you understand that we are not short on exhortation. We believe that the Bible is very clear and exhorts us repeatedly. Paul, in Romans chapter 12, all the way through the end of this letter, has been exhorting and exhorting and exhorting. I mean, over 40 commands he has given already up to this point in just a few short chapters. Paul is not afraid to exhort Christians to continue to pursue the Lord, but one of the things he does is so important to understand. He pulls back. He knows when he's been exhorting enough, and he knows when he needs to simply encourage and recognize God's grace and kindness in people's lives. It's kind of like a a parent. You know, you've seen those parents. Maybe you are one of those parents who loves to drive their kids to, to achieve. Maybe some of you grew up with those kind of parents, right? Like everything was about just doing more, doing better. You got to get another A. A is not good enough. A plus. You got to go honors. You got to, you know, you got to excel, excel, excel. And you're just constantly being pushed. Maybe it's academics. Maybe it's sports. Maybe it's career. I don't know what it might be for you, but I know this. If that was your life and if that's what your kids endure right now, it can be exhausting, And one of the things that we need to see is is that sometimes, listen, one word of encouragement goes further than ten words of exhortation. Constant exhortation is exhausting. Regular encouragement, listen, Christian, is is refreshing. And so I just simply want to show you that Paul looks for evidences of grace in the lives of the people he is serving, and I want to encourage you to do the same. And and by the way, I, I, I want to do the same. I love looking around this room and seeing so many people here that I've, I've watched just grow remarkably in the faith and excel in their Christian walk and in their spiritual maturity. I've seen some of you literally come to faith in this church, be discipled in this church, and now pour your lives into others who, who are now following Jesus because they're trying to follow your example in the faith. And it's so overwhelmingly encouraging to see the grace of God at work. I want to encourage you to look, be a person who looks for evidences of grace in the lives of others. Parents, uh, look for evidences of grace in the lives of your children, and when you see it, acknowledge it and encourage them. Spouses, don't just harp on one another about how you can be doing better. Encourage one another where you're excelling. Christian leaders, as you're discipling others, look for those moments and places of God's grace that are so clearly evident. Some of you are like, I've been looking. I don't see anything. Look harder. Okay, just look harder. Seriously, if you can't spot evidences of grace in someone else's life, you want to know what that means? You probably don't focus enough on God's grace in your own life. And one of the ways you can, you can really quickly start looking for evidence of grace in other people's lives is simply to pause and, and look back at how God has, has been so gracious to you in your life. Look at how gracious God has been and become a thankful person for how God has been working in you. What happens when we encourage people? I think it's very obvious. Encouragement stimulates the desire to grow. Encouragement stifles criticism and condemnation. Encouragement testifies to God's work. And for most of us, for many of us, this doesn't come naturally, and so we must discipline ourselves to do it regularly. Secondly, in the same verse, I want you to notice this, that a mature Christian, a healthy Christian, as someone who's striving to be that, I must apply truth faithfully. I want you to notice that Paul commends three things in particular in the Roman believers. He says, first of all, they are full of goodness. Again, in other words, goodness, by the way, is a fruit of the Spirit of God. He's simply acknowledging that he sees that God's Spirit is at work within them. And this, I think, points to the fact that he sees them striving after the Lord. He's not looking for perfection in their life. But he's looking for people who are pursuing the Lord Jesus Christ, and he looks at this church and he, he sees it. He sees that their desire is to be pleasing to God. 
Secondly, notice this, he, he acknowledges that they are filled with all knowledge. And, and this is interesting because what Paul has given to us in this book, think about it, he's writing to these Christians, and he's given them this extensive exposition of the gospel of Jesus Christ. He's taught them surely a lot of things they didn't previously know or fully understand, but here he tells them, listen, I know you're full of knowledge. He wants to make it clear that though he's been dispensing a lot of content, a lot of information, he doesn't believe that they're totally ignorant. They know the truth. He knows that they know the gospel. He knows that they understand the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. He looks at them and he says, look, I know you're growing in the grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. This doesn't imply that they knew everything, but that they know, what they know now produces an appetite to keep learning more. And Christian, one of the ways you can know that you are growing in the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ is that there is, there is this appetite, this appetite that you're cultivating that exists in your heart because it's, it's a supernatural work of God's grace that you, you long to know the Lord. You want to know more. You're willing to sacrifice things in your life in order to, to, to pursue in greater, more meaningful ways a deeper relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. Here he acknowledges that this is exactly what they're doing. Lastly, he commends them because they're able to instruct one another. Not only do they apply the truth to their own lives, that's what he's been acknowledging, but he actually looks at them and he says, you are also able to apply the truth to one another's lives. You're growing so much in your maturity that, that you don't just need me to teach you things. You're able now to, to teach and instruct one another. This, this term that he uses here for instruct, it, it's, it's more than just teaching. It's, it's a comprehensive term. It's a term that involves, yes, teaching, exhorting, encouraging, even at times rebuking, but it carries this idea of, of actually counseling other people in the faith, coming alongside them to disciple them and to build them up. And what he's telling the church is this, you have been given everything you need by the grace of God, by the power of His Spirit and the knowledge of His Word. You are able to come alongside one another so that you can exercise your spiritual gifts in a way that's going to edify and strengthen and grow up the body of Christ into the fullness of Christ. It's a beautiful thing that he says. And I, I think this is really helpful because in today's day and age, there's a lot of opportunities to go get counsel. You can pay a lot of money, you can pay a lot of money to have people tell you exactly what's wrong with you and give you some kind of maybe helpful ideas of what you can do about it. But here's the problem, when we look at what the world has to offer us, they can only go so far with the kind of counsel they can give. They can only, in a sense, listen, they can provide a lot of helpful insight. So I'm not diminishing it entirely, but here's the reality. The secular world, the humanistic world outside of us, they, they don't fully comprehend the totality of the human being. They, they don't believe or know what God says about the human heart, about the human problem. They have no concept of the biblical idea and concept of sin, and so therefore, they can't totally diagnose everything everything that's wrong with a human being. They know a portion of, of humanity. They, they see a sliver of humanity. But the Bible, listen, unfolds the wholeness of the human being. And, and this is really important to understand because my fear, as I look at the church, you would, you would not believe how many times I hear of Christians who run to the secular world for counsel without ever drawing into the church without ever asking the question, what does God have to say about my problems? And I think part of that is because we fail to understand and believe what Paul says here. We need to believe that Paul is right, that God has given us everything we need for life and godliness, that we are able to counsel and instruct 
and help one another. And, and by the way, that doesn't mean everybody can do it as equally as good as, as another person, but what it does mean is this, that God has placed us into a family, into a body, into a church. And, and across this room, listen, there are a variety of gifts. There are depths of wisdom and insight and knowledge. And God wants to use each of us in one another's lives in order to help us and strengthen us in the faith. One author says it like this, when God's Word rules our hearts, His Holy Spirit makes us rich in the true wisdom and prepares us to instruct one another, to teach and help one another along the right road. He goes on to say this, the primary place for Christians to counsel and be counseled is the church. not, Not just within the building, within the body. Some of you are in desperate need for somebody to pour into your life to help you see what's going on in your own heart, to just simply have somebody to support you, encourage you, and come alongside you. And so here's what I want to say to some of you who are maybe hiding in the shadows. Lean into the body of Christ. Don't push away. Don't run quickly outside the church. Run quickly into the church. Seek help amongst the people that that God has called you to be a a part of, and watch how God will grow you and change you and strengthen you and mature you. These three things that Paul identifies here in the Roman church ought to characterize us as we too seek to apply God's truth faithfully to our hearts and to the hearts of one another, which means that a healthy Christian must also be prepared to do this next, speak truth boldly. A healthy Christian is always somebody who who is able to speak truth with boldness. And that's not always easy. Paul in Ephesians, he actually prayed, prayed. He asked the church to pray that he would speak with boldness as he ought to speak. And it reminds us, listen, that even the Apostle Paul knew that speaking with boldness was hard. But we see from Paul's example that he wasn't afraid to speak boldly. Throughout this letter, we've, we've watched the Apostle Paul urge, make appeals, exhort, and even at times rebuke. And he tells us here in this verse, verse 15, he says, but on some points I have written to you very boldly by way of reminder. Don't you love that? He's kind of almost like, I know you know these things, but I need to speak very boldly and courageously. I need to remind you of what you already know. Um, I've, I've heard it said, and I've often repeated, that the ministry of preaching and the ministry of Christian counseling and discipling really is the ministry of reminding. I mean, some of you have been coming to this church a long time, and you're like, when is this guy going to say something new? I got nothing. I got nothing new. It's the same old truths. This is what we need. But here's here's the thing. We need the same old truths drilled into our hearts. Why? Because we're prone to wander. Lord, we feel it, don't we? Because we we don't fully embrace all of the truths we we know we're supposed to. And every time we, we come back to the Word of God, we're reminded about what is true and right and beautiful and who we ought to be and who God is. And Paul was bold in his ministry of reminding. We keep reminding one another of the gospel. We keep pointing each other back to Jesus. We keep reminding each other, listen, of grace upon grace. We keep reminding each other, listen, that Jesus is worth everything we are and everything we have. We keep reminding one another that the world, listen, is antagonistic towards the lordship of Jesus Christ, and we need to be transformed by the renewal of our minds. We need to be reminded constantly, I need it, you need it, and God is faithful to keep on doing it. Amen? But we need to do it boldly. We need courage in this, and, and the reason is, is because it's often easy to overlook areas of sin. It's often difficult to address areas of sin in one another's lives, and any time we preach the truth of Jesus Christ, it requires us to have a degree of courage and boldness. It's not easy because every time we speak the truth, listen, especially in today's day and age, not just with one another, but out in the world, listen, we always risk offending somebody, don't we? The truth is always offensive. 
especially to people who want to continue to live in sin. I mean, Paul, Paul, you just think about what Paul has done in the very first three chapters of this letter. Do you remember how he went after both the Jews and Gentiles? And he showed them over and over, everybody is a sinner. Nobody's righteous. All, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And he just, he just, he just demo, demoed everybody in the world and said, you are all, listen, under the wrath of God and the judgment of God. And Paul knew, Paul knew that that could provide a great degree of backlash, but he was willing to say the hard truths because he knows, listen, if we're not willing to speak the truth, then nobody will ever get saved. If we're not willing to speak the truth, nobody will ever get sanctified. Now, this is not an excuse to lack grace intact. Some of you are like, yes, I'm going to speak the truth to somebody. Listen, tell them exactly what they need to hear. Listen, listen, gentleness, patience, love, these are all fruits of the Spirit as well, you know. And we need these things when we speak to one another. We need to be gracious and gentle, and we need to not kind of run in guns ablazing and make all kinds of assumptions. We need to learn to ask good questions and draw out the heart of the people we're talking to. And Paul has been so good throughout this letter of giving us some principles that help us engage with people. Let me just give you a few, just really quickly. Here's some principles just for how to have some tact and speak the truth with boldness. I think Paul's taught us in this letter to major on the majors. Paul's, Paul's not going to debate every single minor theological issue. I mean, think of Romans 14 where he's taught the strong and the weak how to navigate issues of practice and custom and to, to be slow and careful and not to hurt other people. It leads to a second principle, seek to win people, not arguments. I mean, listen, and sometimes you've got to win the arguments to win the people, but the, but the point is, is, that, is the goal is not just to win people or win the argument with people. The goal is to win people to truth. Here's another principle, approach people with humility, not pride. Be a humble person when you're going to confront somebody in sin or you're going to talk about an area of difficulty. Don't come with pride and thinking that you know everything. Let me give you another one, be patient and gracious with people. I know I I just talked about that, but it, it, it bears repeating. We need to be patient and gracious with one another. Be slow. People are on a journey. It takes time. Not every issue is easy. Think about how patient and gracious God has been with you. And I think one of the principles that Paul has been driving throughout Romans 12 in particular to the end of this letter is is this. Love God and love others. Truly love them. You want to speak with boldness, then love them. I mean, love, love the glory of God, love to honor God, and, and make that your supreme desire. And out of that flows a love for other people where you want to see them walk in the truth, where you want to see them know the joy of the Lord and satisfaction in Him. Often we fear speaking truth to people because we love self more than we love others in God, which reveals who or what we're actually worshiping. Which leads to the final kind of sub-point here, which is this, a healthy Christian must worship God continually. A healthy, mature Christian is somebody who views all of life as worship. And Paul, he looks, yes, specifically at his ministry. And it's interesting, he, he, he describes it here in priestly terms. He says that, He's spoken very boldly by way of reminder because of the grace given me by God. God has has given him this grace gift to be an apostle. But look at how he describes this, to be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles in the priestly service of the gospel of God so that the offering of the Gentiles may be acceptable, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. You see, he paints this, this Old Testament picture of a priest in the temple offering sacrifices on behalf of the people. And if you know anything about the Old Testament sacrificial system, one of the things you know is that the priests in the Old Testament were, they were the mediator between God and man. So, so human beings couldn't just directly go to God with their worship. They had to come into the temple. They had to bring the sacrifice to the priest. And the priest had to do all of that on their behalf and present it to God. So Paul has this priestly imagery in his mind when he thinks about his ministry to the Gentile world. Remember that the Apostle Paul is the apostle to the Gentiles. 
But if you know anything about the New Testament, you know this, that the Old Testament sacrificial system, temple system, priestly system is no longer in effect because Jesus Christ is the great high priest. Jesus Christ is the ultimate sacrifice. He is the one to whom all of those things pointed to. He fulfills them all so that that whole system is now done away with. And Christ Himself is the only mediator. He's the one and only mediator between God and man. And as an extension of the ministry of Jesus, Paul sees his own ministry as a priestly sort of ministry, but I want you to notice what he wants to offer to God. Did you notice this? It's people. His offering of praise and worship to God are Gentile converts, people who hear the gospel, who believe the gospel, who repent and are saved. He's saying, listen, this is the greatest offering I can give to God. My whole life is devoted to this one thing that I, I might take people and present them to God as those now who will be living sacrifices, who will live their lives for Him and His glory, who will live all of their lives as an act of worship unto Him. You see what He's done here? He's pulled us all the way back to Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2 where he's, he's told us that the Christian life is a life of worship. And the people that he presents, did you notice this? The living sacrifices are made acceptable to God by the Holy Spirit. You see, that's the only way that people can be made acceptable to God. It's never by their own merit, never by their own effort. They must be sanctified. They must be set apart. They must be made holy by the Spirit of God. You see, Paul understands that while he is responsible to proclaim the saving message of Jesus Christ, only God does the saving. Only God does the saving. And that's the message of the gospel he's been proclaiming from cover to cover. His whole message has been a message that, listen, you are a a, a deep, wicked sinner, and you are alienated from God. Your sin and the stain of sin that you could never scrub off on your own, it has alienated you from the presence of God. You are without hope in this world because you are without God in this world, and you deserve the judgment of God. That's what every single human being deserves in our sin. But the hope of the gospel he proclaims is this, that by the grace of God, you can be reconciled to God. You can have your sins wiped away. You can be washed white as snow. You you can be justified. You can live just as if you've never sinned. Every sin you've ever committed or ever will commit can be completely eradicated from your record of debt. It can be wiped away, never, never to be held against you ever again. Isn't that awesome news? And the better news is this. Not only can you stand before God guiltless, no, no guilt, no shame, you can actually stand before God perfectly righteous, just as if you've always obeyed. Why? Because at the cross of Jesus Christ, Jesus, in this this great exchange, Jesus takes all of your sin, and then He turns around and He gives you all of His righteousness. The eternal, matchless, holy righteousness of God is given to your account freely by faith alone in Christ alone, all because of God's grace alone. And the Holy Spirit justifies us, sanctifies us, will one day glorify us, glorify us. And by an act of God's grace alone, listen, people are set free from their bondage to sin to present themselves to God day after day for His service. And for Paul, all of life and ministry was sacred. Everything he did was worship. Everything was done to please God. All of life was, was a liturgy, if I can use that language. He saw himself as a priest. You see, why why is this important for us? Listen, because identity drives activity, okay? Get that in your head. Identity drives activity. Paul saw himself as a priest, and he understood that that meant a life of worship. We too, listen, according to the Scriptures, are a royal priesthood. 
priesthood. We are a kingdom of priests, 1 Peter 2, verse 5 says. We are living stones, a part of the holy temple of God that He is building up and adding to every day as people turn from their sin and place their faith in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. We too are called to see our identity as ministers, as priests who offer ourselves continually as living sacrifices. So why don't we worship more in the Christian life? Why, why, don't we, why is this a struggle in the Christian life? I, I don't know about you. I, I find this at times to be a struggle to consider all of life as worship. Here, here's one of the things I think is important to understand. We worship little in life because in our lives we think little of God. Let me say that again. We worship little in our lives because in our lives we think little of God. We're busy thinking about so many other things all the time, dominating our attention, our jobs, our careers, our kids, our spouse. The mind that thinks much of God produces a life of continuous worship unto God. Which, Kristen, this is, this is why, you know, when we talk about, like, getting in God's Word every day, when we're talking about being with God's people regularly, this isn't about, like, just ticking a box. This is because we're trying to constantly have our minds saturated with thoughts of God. We want to wake up, and we want to wake up, and we're going to get our eyes on the Lord. We want to wake up and be reminded that, that today is a gift of God's grace, that every breath I have is a gift from God that today I am called to, to live for Him in His glory. And every time I open God's Word, I'm refreshed by His Word. Every time I, I meet with God's people, I should be reminded of God's faithfulness and kindness to call me into the family of God. Every time we gather together on Sundays and we, we lift our voices to the King of kings and Lord of lords, we're being reminded, church, that our lives are to be a continuous act of worship unto our God. This is what a healthy Christian looks like. Like Paul, I must be a healthy Christian. Like Paul, I must be a healthy Christian. Secondly, listen, with a holy ambition. And here Paul talks about two aspects of his ministry. In verses 17 through 21, he's going to describe for us his gospel success. And then he's going to describe for us his gospel strategy. And again, both of these describe and define His ministry, but they also teach us about our ministry and our mission as individuals and as a church. By His example, He teaches us that a healthy Christian must have a holy ambition, and He actually shows us what that looks like. So let me give you four ways we ought to do this. Make it your ambition to first boast in Christ. Make it your ambition to boast in Christ. Verse 17, in Christ Jesus then, this is, I have reason to be proud of my work for God. For I will not venture to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me to bring the Gentiles to obedience. Paul attributes the success of his ministry to Christ. He sees all of the success. And by the way, it's remarkable success. I mean, we, we will never see the kind of success that the Apostle Paul saw in his own life in ministry for the Lord. Think about what Paul has become by the end of his life in some regards. Paul has become a famous speaker. He's become a famous author. Paul has become a famous leader and a famous church planter. And in our culture, you want to know what that would mean? A great opportunity to boast in self. Someone once said that he who sings his own praise is usually off-key. Paul knew that any success that he experienced in his life and ministry were all and only the result of God and His grace. Listen, I, I think this is really important to understand. He wasn't afraid to acknowledge success, but he was terrified of claiming responsibility for it. It's a wonderful thing to be able to just step back and go, look what God is doing. Look at the people God is saving. Look at, the, look, at, look at the growth that people are experiencing in their lives. Look at the churches that are being planted. Look at the ministry that's being accomplished. Look at what God is doing. Listen, may we never, may we never take responsibility for something that God is doing by His grace. Paul understood this. Some plant, some water, but it is God who gives the growth. 
Secondly, make it your ambition to bring people to obedience. The mark of Paul's success was in many ways the lives that were being impacted by the gospel. And again, part of his calling was was to be a missionary, a minister to the Gentile world, to bring the knowledge of the glory of the gospel of Jesus Christ to their attention. He, He says that God had accomplished through him to bring the Gentiles to obedience. Now, this implies a conversion, that they they came to understand the gospel, that they believed the gospel. But I need you to see this. It implies much more than that. This word isn't simply about counting conversions. It's about the, the impact of the gospel to create a new person, to, to renovate them from the inside out. It's about seeing the evidence of a life that is being surrendered and sanctified. See, Paul wasn't simply a traveling evangelist with a handful of sugar stick messages that he brought from town to town. That's what we we preachers call it in the biz, sugar sticks, just, you know, your best messages. It's not what Paul was doing. Paul Paul wasn't kind of just going like, okay, how can I make a name for myself? How can I I make sure whenever I go to the next town, I just say, hey, look how many people just came forward to the front of the stage after I I preached this, this, the message that I preach everywhere I go. He wasn't interested in that. In fact, Paul often devoted a huge portion of time. He would spend time with the people that he preached the gospel to. He would pour his life into them. Day and night, he would meet with them. He would teach them and instruct them. He would mentor them. He would help establish leaders in every town he went to. He wanted to see churches planted, thriving, growing, healthy, vibrant, and it cost all of him to make this possible. He gave himself to this ministry. The Great Commission assumes that not only will you believe the gospel, but that you will grow in the gospel. We are to baptize people in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and then teach them to observe all that Jesus commanded. There is an ongoing process of discipleship required. So here's the deal church. Listen, Paul assumes that you will begin to engage meaningfully in the life of the church. If you've you've committed your life to Jesus Christ, Paul is assuming that that means you will see the church as the vehicle of God's grace to now help you grow and mature as a disciple of Christ. There is no such thing as a Christian who is not a part of the church. We're all a part of the church. Here's the only question. Are you actively engaged in the church the way that God calls you to be? If you're not, you know this to be true experientially. You know this to be true. You're not growing the way you ought to. You're struggling in your faith. But when you engage in the way that God has designed, you begin to grow and help the body grow up into maturity. Paul modeled this in his life and ministry. He wasn't interested in remaining a spiritual infant, and he was not interested in leaving people in spiritual infancy and church. Neither should we be. And listen, if you're here today and you're like, you've been a, a Christian for a while, but you're an, an infant, we, we love that you're here, but here's the deal. We don't want you to stay a baby Christian. You shouldn't want to stay a baby Christian. You should want to grow in your knowledge and understanding of the gospel, of the word of God. You you should want to thrive in your spiritual life. And then you should want to take what you know and pass it on to others and help them grow. This is the way God has designed the gospel to work in the life of the church. So let me ask you, are you engaged in discipleship? This is a holy ambition. Are you growing in obedience and helping others to grow in obedience? If not, let's go. The time is now. The time is short, so let's get after this. Next, make it your ambition to serve in the power of the Spirit. I love how Paul makes it, again, very clear that this is all the result of God's grace. He says that God had accomplished through him to bring the Gentiles to obedience. Listen to this, by word indeed, verse 19, by the power of signs and wonders and by the power of the Spirit of God. So much so that 
from Jerusalem and all the way around Illyricum. He says that he has fulfilled the ministry of the gospel of Christ. Paul brought Gentiles to obedience by word and deed, by the power of signs and wonders, by the power of the Spirit of God. Listen, our, our success will not be true success without the power of the Holy Spirit. Christ works by the powers of signs and wonders through the life of the Apostle Paul. You say, what does this mean? Well, elsewhere, Paul writes in 2 Corinthians, he says, the signs of a true apostle were performed among you with utmost patience, with signs and wonders and mighty works. He uses all three terms there in relationship to an apostolic ministry that he uses here. Again, describing his own apostolic ministry. The manifestation of the Spirit was different in the life of Paul because of his unique role as an apostle If you look through the book of Acts, here's one of the things you see. He blinded um, a magician. He healed a cripple. He expelled demons from people. We read that God performed extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul so that even handkerchiefs or aprons that had touched his skin were carried away to the sick and their diseases left them and the evil spirits came out of them. I mean, this guy had a unique ministry. See, why? Why was this necessary for Paul during this time? Here's why. Because all these signs God was using to confirm both the message and the messenger in this unique period in salvation history. And while we are not Paul, we too must serve in the power of the Holy Spirit. The power of the Holy Spirit is still seen today in both words and deeds one, one commentator says this, this combination of words and works, the verbal and the visual, is a recognition that human beings often learn more through their eyes than through their ears. Words explain works, but works dramatize words. So what is he saying? Listen, physical miracles are not the only way in which the power of the Holy Spirit is displayed. In fact, the usual way God puts His power on display is through the Word of God, which is His sword. Loved ones, when we speak the words of God, the power of God's voice rings loudly in the ears of all who hear. Light shines into the darkness. Scales fall off people's eyes. Hard hearts are softened all by the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ. The greatest miracle of all is that God takes desperate, lowly, weak, wicked sinners and He breathes new life into their dead body. He brings them up into newness of life life into resurrection life to now live for Him for all eternity. That's the greatest miracle in the Bible. And God is accomplishing that every single day. Every conversion is a power encounter in which the Spirit, through the gospel, rescues, redeems, and regenerates sinners. When we live in a way, listen, that accords with the gospel, you want to know where we see this in your deeds? When you live like someone who is counter-cultural, You are showing the power of God to the world. You're saying, God has changed me. He's given me this new life. You're putting His power on full display as you live for Him in His glory. A holy ambition seeks to serve in the power of the Spirit, and that holy ambition is seen when we lastly do this, proclaim the gospel. This was Paul's greatest ambition. And he tells us that his, his ministry was a priestly ministry, it was a powerful ministry, but you need to see this, it's a pioneering ministry. And all the way around from Jerusalem to Illyricum, he says, I have fulfilled the ministry of the gospel of Christ, and thus, I love this, listen, underline this in your Bible, if, if you're an underlier, and thus, I make it my ambition to preach the gospel. I make it my ambition to preach the gospel. I make it my ambition to preach the gospel. And Paul's ministry, again, was unique. Listen to what he says. He says, not where Christ has already been named, lest I build on someone else's foundation. But as it is written, he quotes from Isaiah 53, the servant song, those who have never been told of him will see, and those who have never heard will understand. Paul was tasked to take the gospel to the unbelieving Gentile world. And his ambition is so clear. 
He uses this construction metaphor, building on another's foundation. I just want you to to know this, that Paul's not opposed to people building on another's foundation. He'll oftentimes raise people up to stay and to continue to build a foundation in a certain city or a region or a place. Paul is simply stating that God has given him a unique missionary ministry to the unreached. In fact, he saw in his life and ministry the fulfillment of Isaiah 52.15. He reads back into this servant psalm, and he sees that that as an extension of the ministry of Jesus Christ, he is taking the gospel to the world. It is his ambition to reach the lost. I don't know what your greatest ambition is in this life, but I know this. If you're a follower of Jesus Christ, the greatest ambition, the greatest job, the greatest goal of your life should be to reach people with Jesus Christ. We're a local church. God has given to us, first and foremost, a local ministry. This is where God has placed us, in this area, the the Durham region. And this is where we believe God wants to use us most. And I'll just say this to, to, to most of you sitting here, most of you will never be called to a foreign mission field, but you are called to this local mission field. God is wanting to send out the, the laborers. He's wanting us to fulfill the ministry that He has given to us. And it's helpful for us to ask this question repeatedly in our lives, am I proclaiming the gospel? Am I testifying to the grace of God and the gospel of Jesus Christ, or am I just living my life? Is my ambition for other things in this world that are detracting me from the greater ambition of preaching Christ to the lost? And it's not wrong to have ambitions for other things in this world. It's just wrong if they eclipse the greater ambition for the gospel. But as a local church, listen, we must look beyond our own community. We must see God's plan to advance His kingdom and His glory across this world. We must see that there are countless people who are still unreached and need to hear the gospel. That's why we've always been a strategic church. We've always been involved in church planting. We've always been involved in training up pastors, equipping leaders. We're also a supporting church. Most of you know this. We love those who are devoting their lives to proclaim the gospel, uh, reaching and teaching ministries. The Gabriels in Cork, Ireland, the Bacchus in in South Africa, Red Deer in Edmonton, and on and on. And we want to be a sending church. We want to be a church that sees God building people up here and now. We want to see God call people in this place, raise them up into maturity. We want to see God call some of you into positions of leadership in this church. We want to see God call some of you out and into positions of leadership to go out into another local church. We want to see some of you go out and plant churches. We want to see some of you go out and revitalize churches. We want to see all of you, we want to see all of you doing what God has called you to do wherever God has placed you. Maybe God is calling you. Maybe God is calling you into full-time ministry. Maybe God is calling you or will call you to plant or revive a church. Maybe God will call some of you to go overseas and to devote your lives to, to reaching the unreached. What an awesome thing that would be. But I'll tell you this right now, He is calling you. He is calling you. He's calling you right now to be a healthy Christian with a holy ambition, to join with Paul and say, I make it my ambition to preach the gospel, and to one day join with Paul and say, I have fulfilled the ministry of the gospel of Christ.